I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, we've been in a series in the letter to the Corinthians for a while now. And uh, this morning we come to chapter 15, verse 29. Uh, This chapter, the entire chapter, uh, Paul is unpacking the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, we come to this section now, verses 29 to 34, and I've entitled our message The resurrection, why it matters, why it matters. So I'll begin reading for us in verse 29 and read through to verse 34. This is God's word. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace, and we praise you for your word. Lord, we ask that your word would be our delight, like the psalmist in Psalm 1, that we would delight in your word day and night. And that we would be like that tree that is planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season. Whose leaf does not wither. Father, make us such a people, individually and as a body, as a church, as a community. May we be a people of your word. And Father, we thank you and praise you for this word that you have given us. That declares to us the glorious hope that we have and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand this truth more deeply. And Lord, we pray that our lives would be changed by it. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, the religious landscape in America has been changing for many years. One indication of that is a Pew Research poll that was conducted in 2014 that revealed that about 25% of the American population now identifies themselves as nuns. I'll define what that means. A nun is someone who claims to be either an atheist or an agnostic, which means I don't really know if God exists or not, or they say that their religious affiliation is really no religious affiliation in particular. They don't really believe anything in particular. That's kind of their religion. So they identify as nuns. They, they don't really have a religious, a religious conviction, a religious stance. Now, some celebrate this shift as progressive, as liberating, that there are an increasing number of nuns in our society. But before we celebrate this shift, I think we need to pause for a moment and consider what it is that we might be leaving behind and what the consequences might be. You see, as more and more people in our society are identifying as nuns, we see an increasing 
number of people rejecting moral absolutes. In fact, in a study that was conducted by Christian Smith, he found that 30% of young adults in America associate themselves with strong moral relativism. Now, what, what is moral relativism? This is the idea that there are no moral absolutes. There's nothing that we can say is absolutely right or absolutely wrong for everyone. So 30% of young Americans identify with this position as being strong moral relativist. You say, well, what does that actually look like in life? Let me give you one example. In that study, there was a young woman who was asked, and she was identified as a strong moral relativist, She was asked how she would respond if there was a terrorist attack on our nation. Could she, specifically she was asked, could you denounce such an act as a final and absolute moral wrong? And here's her response. Quote, I don't know that people like terrorists what they do. It's not wrong to them. They're doing the thing that they think is the best thing they could possibly do, and so they're doing good. I had this discussion with a friend recently, and she's like, but they're still murdering tons of people. That just has to be wrong. And I was like, but do we have any idea if it's actually wrong to murder tons of people? Like, what does that even mean? So you could say that people who are terrorists are born into cultures where it's taught that it's all right and necessary and really important for them to kill a bunch of people, end of quote. Now, as absolutely frightening as that is, I appreciate her consistency. Because when you deny the existence of God, it really does destroy any basis for morality. Any basis for saying that there's absolutely moral rights and absolute moral wrongs, that there's justice and injustice that's universal and it doesn't matter what culture or background or place you come from or what you think about the matter. And so in contrast to the moral vision that is being cast for us in our society, Paul has a very different vision of morality. And it's a vision of morality that finds its roots in and springs forth from the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is going to say in our passage this morning is that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, therefore, this is how we should live. And the resurrection of Jesus is the basis and the foundation for that morality. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is the basis for and the power of a life worth living. A life that if we were to look at it, we would say, that is a beautiful life. That is a life worth living. Where do you get the moral courage, the moral faith, the love to live a life like that? Paul would say, it's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I want us to consider from our passage three effects of the resurrection of Jesus, and then just briefly at the end, two exhortations. First of all, three effects of the resurrection of Jesus. The first effect of the resurrection of Jesus that we see in our passage 
is that the resurrection of Jesus gives meaning to baptism. The resurrection of Jesus gives meaning to baptism. Look there in verse 29. We read, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now let me just say right up front, this is a very difficult passage to interpret. At face value, it seems that what Paul might be saying here is that some folks who are alive are being baptized on behalf of the dead in order to earn merit for them or in order to gain salvation for them, that is, for the dead. Actually, um, the Mormon church has built an entire doctrine off of this one verse, and they practice baptism for the dead, living people being baptized in order to earn or gain salvation for those who have already died. Now, there's at least a couple of problems with this interpretation. One's an historical problem. If you look at the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, there is no evidence for such a practice. Even if you look at literature outside of the New Testament during this time, there's no evidence for such a practice. Even if you look at literature in regards to paganism during this time, there's no evidence that such a practice took place among the pagans. So if this is what Paul is speaking of, if Paul is saying that the living should be baptized on behalf of the dead in order to earn or gain salvation for them, it would be an historical anomaly. This would be the only place where it appears in the historical record. So there's an historical problem. The other problem is a theological problem. And this is a really important principle for us to understand as we're reading and trying to understand Scripture. If we come across a difficult passage, one of the things we need to do is allow... So we come across a difficult passage and say, I don't really know what this means. I don't know where this kind of fits in. I don't understand the context in which it's written. We need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And in doing so, what what we do is we start to think, okay, well, what else has Paul said about baptism? What else has Paul said about salvation? And if Paul is saying here that the dead earn salvation by the living being baptized on their behalf, that would contradict everything else Paul has said in the Bible about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul says everywhere else in the scriptures, including this letter, that we are saved through grace, not by some rite or ceremony, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So if, if, this is, if that's not what Paul means, then, then what does Paul mean? There have been many suggestions, but I think the best option is that Paul here is making a reference to what baptism symbolizes. Paul is making a reference here to what baptism symbolizes. This morning we have the joy, absolute joy, of baptizing three people, okay? And so we're going to be doing that here in a little while. And you know, when when we baptize someone, there's a a confession that we make. We, We say, buried with him with Jesus, right? Buried with him in baptism. And then what do we say? Anybody know? Raised, right? Raised to walk in newness of life. And it seems that this is what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about this idea that when we go under the waters of baptism, it is a symbol of the fact that we are being, we are, our old self, our old sinful self is being crucified with Christ. It's being put to death. So that sin no longer has power and dominion over us. It's present, but the power of sin in our lives has been broken. 
And then we are raised to walk in newness of life. We have the spirit of Christ, the the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead comes into us and changes us and transforms us and empowers us to walk in a new way. And baptism symbolizes that transformation. Death with Jesus and life in Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, baptism is meaningless. Why would you declare buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, if Jesus has never been raised from the dead? If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then Jesus' death only symbolizes death. There is no life. And if there's no life, there's no change. There's no transformation. There's no hope of anything after this life. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead... Oh, my friends, then baptism is full of meaning, full of significance, because it declares that we have been united with Jesus in his resurrection life. The second effect of Christian baptism is not only does it, or or of Jesus' resurrection, is not only does it give meaning to baptism, but it inspires sacrificial living. It inspires sacrificial living. Look there in verses 30 to 32, and we read these words. Paul says, why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Now, Paul's life, we know from other uh, accounts and from this account here, we know that Paul's life was marked by dangerous, loving, self-sacrifice. He says in just these few verses here that he was in danger every hour, that he died daily, that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. And of course, there's a sense in which as he makes these statements, there's, there's something, he's using some figurative language here. So for example, he's not making an absolute claim that he's in danger every single hour of his life but that generally characterizes his life. He didn't literally die every day, or he wouldn't have been alive to write this letter. And even when it comes to this phrase that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus, although Paul faced many perils in his life, most believe that he did not literally fight wild beasts at Ephesus. There's a couple of reasons to, to say that. One is because Had he done so, unless God had miraculously intervened, Paul would not have survived, and he would not have been able to write this letter. Another reason, though, even more to the point, is that this was a phrase that was commonly used in Paul's time to express an intense or fierce struggle, an ongoing battle. It would be like today when we say, you're killing me, right? We we don't actually mean the person is murdering us. What we mean is, whatever it is that you're doing, it's really bothering me, and I want you to stop, right? And so Paul is using kind of figurative language here to speak of his time in Ephesus. And his time in Ephesus, as we learn from the book of Acts, was marked by fierce opposition that even had the potential of death. So what Paul is saying in these verses is, listen, in my attempt to love and to serve others and to preach the gospel, I am regularly faced with difficulty, with danger, and with the possibility of death. 
In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he opens up even further talking about what this looked like in his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 27, he says, listen to this. This, this was Paul's ministry. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, Paul's life was marked by this ongoing, courageous, loving, sacrificial giving of himself for the sake of others. And understand, my friends, throughout the centuries, it is a Christian worldview that has inspired countless Christians to give themselves sacrificially for the physical good and the spiritual good of others. And Paul is saying here, if you take that Christian worldview and you rip the death of Jesus Christ out of it, which is the supreme example of God's love, and you rip the resurrection of Jesus out of it, which is the confirmation that there will be a resurrection to come and we will stand before God and give an account, you will severely undermine one's motivation to give themselves for the sake of others. Without the resurrection... You severely undermine this Christian ethic and moral that has given such life to the world. I think this is actually illustrated well in a Greek word, telos. There's a Greek word, telos, that actually is translated end or purpose. And many have pointed out that telos, the idea of meaning, of end, of purpose, is critical to establishing... Morality and ethics, it's critical to establishing a basis for loving, sacrificial giving of oneself for the sake of others. You see, the problem with modern conversations about morality is that they start with the denial of God. The modern assumption is that we are merely products of the physical and evolutionary process. And therefore, there is no telos, there is no purpose, there is no meaning. We live, we die, and the universe moves on. There is nothing else. And therefore, there's no basis to establish a moral code. One philosopher actually illustrated this by giving the example of a watch. So say you were to come across a watch... And you were to pick it up and you realize that it was irregular and inconsistent in keeping time. And you made the evaluation, this is a bad watch. You would be justified in doing so. But if you came across a watch and you picked it up and you tried to hit a cat with it and you missed, you probably then wouldn't go, well, you know what? It just didn't have a good grip on it. It wasn't the right size and it didn't have the right weight and not the right velocity. And you would not denounce it as a bad watch. Why? Because that's not what it was made for. 
That wasn't its purpose. That's not its telos. You see, in order to establish whether something is good or bad, you need to understand its meaning, its purpose, its telos. And once you do so, then you can make a moral judgment and evaluation on what is good, what is bad. You see, the problem with with modern discussions about morality is if we don't know what we're created for, if we don't know where we're going, then we have no basis or justification to say what is good or what is wrong. But the Christian worldview says we have been created by our Creator. And our purpose is to be a reflection of His glory and His love to a broken and dying world. And we do have an end and we do have a purpose. We will stand before the living, resurrected Christ and we will give an account for our souls. And this is the basis upon which we then do life. It's no wonder that Jonathan Edwards prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. If we, it, is, it is with the hope of the resurrection, the hope of what's to come in eternal life, that we will possess the love, the courage, and the faith to sacrificially give ourselves for others. So, the first effect of the resurrection that we see in this text is that it gives meaning to baptism. The second is that it leads us to a life of sacrifice. And the third is that it severs or puts to death self-indulgence. Look there in chapter 15, verse 32, the second part of the verse, we read this. I'll just start at the beginning. He says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, here it is. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Really, one of the points that I've been making here, and just to state it a different way, is that philosophy, what we believe about God, about life, about ourselves, always affects morals, how we live. One commentator has said, quote, The resurrection means endless hope. But no resurrection means a hopeless end. It means nothing after this life, and therefore it leads to no ethic or moral. If there's no God, if there's no afterlife, if there's no resurrection, then what does the moral become? It becomes what what Paul speaks of here. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Get all you can while you can. There's nothing else to live for. And the worst expressions of this lead to the greatest forms of selfishness and self-indulgence. You know, I'll I'll just have to say that even as a pastor, just from personal experience, I have seen and it has broken my heart to see this happen over and over again. Where someone denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ or denies the authority of the Bible, denies the reality of of the gospel, and soon after that, there is a significant moral collapse. Whether it's lying, or cheating, or committing adultery, or, being, or addiction, and oftentimes what's left in their wake is a broken family and a series of broken relationships. And listen, my friends, let me say, not everyone, if they deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, immediately goes there. 
Some people maintain that there's, there's some good in having morals about this or that or so forth, and they'll try to uphold those for a time. And maybe, maybe they do for some time. I would just say they don't have any real basis or justification for doing so that's firm and solid and will stand the test of time. And so whether it's in this life or it's in the generations that they influence, at some point it becomes unraveled and begins to fall apart. And the results can be absolutely devastating. Paul says, though, here that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis for a solid moral and ethic. And listen, this is one of the things that we need to ask ourselves as Christians. If this is true, if this is true, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, then is my life a reflection of what I profess to believe? If if I believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead and one day I will stand before him and give an account that this life has led a blip and then it will be eternity with Jesus forever, is my life a reflection of that conviction? You know, Paul's words here where he says in this verse, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, are a citation from Isaiah chapter 22 verse 13. But they're also a reflection of a parable that Jesus told about a rich man. Jesus said that there was this rich man and he had a lot of land, he had a lot of crops and he was doing extremely well. And so he said to himself, you know what I will do? I have so much, so much abundance. I don't know what to do with it all. What I'll do is I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build new barns and I'll fill them with all my crops and all my goods and all my possessions. And then I will say to myself, you have ample for years to come. Eat, drink, and be merry. And you know what Jesus says God will say to that man? Oh fool, you will give an account for your soul. Because you lived for now. You thought this was all there was. You hoarded and kept and indulged yourself rather than storing up in heaven treasures for yourself that will last forever. You see, that's where Jesus says this matters. This idea of the resurrection, this idea of eternal life. And it's not to say that we can't praise God and even enjoy Praise God for the good things he's given us and enjoy the good things that he's given us. But we do need to ask ourselves the question, are we making any decisions in this life about our possessions, about the choices we make that would cause others to say, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, that is crazy. Are we making any decisions in our life like that? Any decisions, any life choices that other people would look at our lives and say, if Jesus Christ hasn't risen from the dead, that makes no sense. And if not, then we have to ask ourselves, is the resurrection just an idea that we kind of broadly assent to? Or is it the foundation upon which we build our lives like the Apostle Paul? And is it the reality for which we will live and die. For honest, we have to say, unfortunately, that a lot of Christians live like that rich man in the parable that Jesus told. Go to church. Don't take any risk. Avoid suffering at all cost. 
no sacrifice. And if that's the case, we have to recognize that we say we believe in the resurrection, but with our lives we declare, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Get all you can while you can. We say eternity awaits, but with our lives we declare, I've only got 20, 40, maybe 50 years. I better hoard it all. My friends, if you want to break, this is what Paul is laying before us. If we, and I say this to myself, if we want to break the hold of self-indulgence on our lives, we must be gripped by the resurrection of Jesus. And the hope of joy and life in His presence forever. It is this hope that severs self-indulgence and leads to glorious self-sacrifice. Two quick exhortations. So those are the three effects of the resurrection, and these we're going to hit much more quickly. Two quick exhortations. The first exhortation that, that flows out of this that Paul gives is, therefore, choose wise companions. Look there in verse 33. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good Morals. Now, how does that connect with the previous verses? Paul has said that the resurrection gives meaning to baptism. It leads to sacrificial living. It severs the root of self-indulgence. Now, why is he talking about who we hang out with? Bad company corrupts good morals. The idea here, the connection, I believe, is that Paul is saying, listen, Corinthian church, there's some of you who say there's no resurrection of the dead. And they are influencing you. And you need to be careful who you're influenced by. Because what they're saying is affecting the way you live. Now, I was listening to an uh, interview with Tim Ferriss, who's a popular author. And he said, this, this struck me. He was asked, if you could communicate to young people like one principle, what would it be? And Tim, Tim Ferriss, is, I don't believe is a Christian, but he, they asked him, what would you communicate to people? And he said this, quote, you're... You are the average of the five people that you associate with the most. You are the average of the five people that you associate with the most. That is a powerful statement. And it's one of the reasons, it's another reason why we need the church, right? Why we so desperately need, not just to attend a service but to be the church and to be in Christian community with other believers. If you see somebody that lives like Paul's living here, that really believes in the resurrection, is living like they believe in the resurrection, you need to hang out with that person. Bad company corrupts good morals, but the reverse as well. If you are with somebody that really loves Jesus and the resurrection, that's going to start rubbing off on you. And Paul says you need that type of community. We might ask ourselves, well then how do we relate to those who deny the resurrection of Jesus? We know that Jesus spent time with sinners and tax collectors. We know that Paul reasoned with unbelievers to persuade them of the resurrection. Yes, we must do that. We must invest in relationships with those who are not yet Christians. But Paul would encourage us not to do so in isolation. 
We need to do so with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to do so in the word and in prayer. We need to do so with a careful attention to the reality that we are engaging in a spiritual battle. And we need to be careful that we are influencing and not being influenced to the detriment of our own souls. The second exhortation is this. Wake up and stop sinning. Wake up and stop sinning. Look there in verse 34. That's countercultural, isn't it? Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul is saying, listen, Corinthian church, you are in a spiritual stupor. The bad ideas that you are embracing are leading to bad living. They're leading to bad morals. Stop it. Stop sinning. And once again, we see here in this verse that Paul identifies the fundamental problem with those who are negatively influencing the Corinthians. And their fundamental problem, get this, is not bad morals. Their fundamental problem is not bad morals. Their fundamental problem is that they do not know God. Paul says they don't know God. That's the reason why they live the way they do. And you are being influenced by those who have no knowledge of God. And this is to your shame. Well, my friends, the resurrection of Jesus matters. It matters for many reasons, and Paul lays out many of them in this chapter. But not the least is that the resurrection is the basis for, and it is the power of, a life worth living. A life marked by the loving self-sacrifice of Jesus that is living for the eternal hope of glory to be with Christ in His joy Enjoy in his presence forever. Let's pray and ask that God would help us to live such lives. Father, we are broken hearted when we consider what a rejection of you and your truth leads to, the moral confusion and disarray that results. And Father, we are thankful and praise you for the certain and sure hope that you've given us in Christ and the life that that produces. Lord, help us to be such a people, to be firmly rooted and grounded in the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that that would not only be known by the words that we speak or the confessions that we make, but by the lives that we live. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that's marked by sacrificial, joyful love. And we pray that it would be a compelling witness to the gospel, that others would see the power of the resurrection of Jesus in our lives. Father, we pray that you would forgive us where we fail and help us, Lord, to be such a people. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.